I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. The Agora Podcast Network is going through some changes. Notably, I've been elected secretary, so we'll see how I manage that. During the transition, our usual slew of promotions and ads is a bit on hold, but there's a few things you guys should know about coming up. First, Royfield Brown, our former president, has asked me to start submitting regular 10-minute segments for his show, Map Corner. I don't think I'm on any of the ones that are up currently, but there should be something up next month if not sooner, so check that out. Speaking of the Agora transition, uh, we have a survey that we would really like you guys to fill out, if you could. Uh, I'm going to be posting a link in the show notes. Uh, Check it out. Next, by the time this posts, it will probably be October. Sorry about that, this episode was a bit hard to write. But the good news is that after you listen to this episode, you can head over to the Agora Podcast Network feed and check out Agoraphobia. Agoraphobia is now a grand tradition, where we all submit 10-minute spooky stories, and they are compiled into four episodes, which are released once a week in October. An episode with a segment by me will be posting first, and if you liked that last episode about medieval sanitary systems, you will probably love my segment. So get out there and smash that subscribe button for the Agora Podcast Network feed. Finally, most of you probably know already, but there's another conference coming up. The Sound Education Conference was a blast last year, and while I won't be speaking this time, I will be in attendance. If you see me, say hi, and maybe buy a t-shirt. I won't be at a table this time, but I will be bringing a few with me just in case. Speaking of such things, remember to go check out the show store. Maybe buy some things. Maybe just donate. Speaking of which, it's time once again to do honor and praise to our donors and patrons. First up, we have Patron Mark, who shall be known from henceforth as Mark, the Ominous Stamp Collector. Next up, we have Seth, whose many services to the kingdom have earned him the office as Sir Seth, the official Haru Specs of the realm. Following Seth, the official Haru Specs of the realm, we have Philip, who shall be known from henceforth as Earl Philip, the dog who bit Hugh the Troubadour. And finally, we have Burnell who shall be known from henceforward as Earl Burnell, the heir of the dog who bit Hugh. Many thanks to all of our glorious donors and patrons, and if you wish to join their ranks, please head over to the website, wittenbergtwestphaliapodcast.weebly.com, and go to the support page. You can also support us by going to that website and going to the store page and buying a t-shirt. There are several glorious models now, which will make all of your friends and family jealous of how awesome you are. You can also rate us on a podcast listening site that does ratings. That is always extraordinarily appreciated. And thanks for listening. And now, on with the show. 
In the European Middle Ages, society was composed of three separate yet equally important parts. Those who prayed, those who fought, and those who worked. These are their stories. Western Francia, sometime in the 740s, in a frothing rage. What should I do if I find among these men certain so-called deacons who have spent their lives since boyhood in debauchery, adultery, and in every kind of filthiness, who entered into the diaconate with this reputation, and who now, while they have four or five concubines in their beds, still read the gospel in mass, and are not ashamed or afraid to call themselves deacons? Nay, rather, entering upon the priesthood, they continue in the same vices, add sin to sin, declare that they have a right to make intercession for the people in their priestly office, and to celebrate Mass, and still worse, with such reputations advancing from step to step as nominations as bishops. May I have a formal written prescription of your authority, i.e. Pope Zachary, as to your procedure in such cases, so that they may be convicted by an apostolic judgment and dealt with as sinners? And certain bishops are to be found amongst the Franks, who, although they deny that they are fornicators or adulterers, are drunkards and shiftless men, given to hunting and fighting in the army like soldiers, and by their own hands shedding blood, whether of heathens or Christian. Everyone's right, and no one is sorry. That's the start and the end of the story, from the sharks and the jets to the call in the morning. Greetings, my name is Benjamin Jacobs, and this is episode 58, Living the Life of Catholic. Way back in the old times, when colors were more vibrant and the weather obeyed laws of narrative convenience, in the before times when our lives had meaning and the hero's journey was more than just an epistemological quagmire. Um, what was I talking about? Oh, right. Many episodes ago, somewhere between episodes 41 and 46, I said I would loop back to talking about what life was like for clerics in the Middle Ages. Then I realized that to talk about this subject, I really needed to talk about the commoners first, and then about ten episodes happened, and here we are. It's now time to talk about the life of the clergy. But first, some review, because it has been a while. The first thing to say here is that the clergy was not a homogenous mass. I know I said this for the nobles and the commoners, but this is all super true for the clergy. Indeed, the first attempts to describe class structure in the Middle Ages was actually mainly focused on the clergy itself. Notably, this version of class structure described a system where there was the regular clergy, the secular clergy, and then literally everyone else in society. This conception of class structure was a little too simple, even for the Middle Ages, and so the concept of those who pray, those who fight, and those who work was developed shortly thereafter. But this division of regular and secular clergy would persist up until the present day. So, what do the terms regular and secular clergy mean? The regular clergy are monks, and depending on who you ask, the nuns. The confusingly named secular clergy are the priests, bishops, deacons, popes, and exorcists that make up the entire rest of the religious hierarchy of the church. This distinction tells us a few things. First, it was very obviously developed by a monk who viewed his practices as normal while the rest of the hierarchy was secular, or out in the world, and weird and icky and gross. Of course, and as we discussed in earlier episodes, the quote-unquote secular church hierarchy was actually the part of the religious establishment that developed first, while communities of extreme ascetics living apart from the world evolved later. There was always an element of criticism implicit in the monastic tradition, as they based their lifestyle on that of the apostles of Jesus, and their vows of poverty were very distinct from the luxury which many bishops enjoyed. 
On the other hand, the bishops were the ones, theoretically, doing the actual work of Christianity. They were the ones who kept the lights on, trained and appointed priests, evangelized to their congregations, and converted people to Christianity. They were the ones who were supposed to be responsible for feeding poor people and things like that. The monks were supposed to just stay isolated in their cloisters, right? This relationship between the regular and secular clergy underwent a constant process of evolution during the early years of Christianity, a process that was by no means complete by the early Middle Ages. But we can say that by the early Middle Ages, both groups played very important roles in the functioning of the church. The monastic orders were an important safety valve for religious true believers, while the secular clergy did the work of ministering to society that the monks theoretically couldn't do while being monks. But there's more to it than that. The institutions of the secular clergy were very logistically tied to urban life. By contrast, monasteries brought their cities with them. As we saw in the episodes on urban development, monastic orders were kind of like freeze-dried cities. They were intended to be self-sufficient and isolated from the world, but they had a need for things. Things like incense, books, candles, education, and the ability to do complex math. They thus often served to catalyze urban life where none had existed before, and more to the point for today, they ended up being the main method of Christianization in much of Northern Europe. While the bishops needed a whole social infrastructure to function, a monk could just plop down on a random island and a few years later you'd have thousands of Christians. Part of why the secular clergy were so dependent on urban places was that they needed literate people to staff their institutions, and these people usually came from the outside. During the Roman Empire, local elites would educate their sons and then enroll them in the clergy for a variety of reasons. Once faced with the low literacy rates of the post-Roman world, this hierarchy struggled. Bishops were theoretically responsible for evangelizing in their communities and training their priests. This was an old tradition, and one that was revived and given new force by Charlemagne. But there was little institutional requirement for these bishop schools beyond the personal interest of the bishop himself, and so their record could be really spotty. By contrast, monastic communities quickly undertook education as part of their core functionality. Because most of the people becoming monks from the outside were illiterate, and some of them were children, the monks had to train them in order to perpetuate their organization. It was an education strictly focused on producing monks who could do vital monk things, like read prayers, but some of these skills were extremely transferable. For example, while most monks only learned the three basic skills of grammar, logic, and rhetoric, with writing being the first step to doing all of this, monks also needed people who could do complex math. Why? Because in an era before digital calendars, someone had to keep very precise track of the date for religious festivals. The only way to do that was to make observations of the nighttime sky, and then use a complex set of mathematical equations and some surviving Roman-era scientific works to determine the date. This incidentally also allowed the farmers associated with the monastery to time the planting of the crops more precisely, which actually may have helped yields. Once you have a few monks who are not only literate but can do higher level math, you have someone with the basic skills to be an administrator. The monasteries undoubtedly benefited from this first in their management of their own lands, but soon these skills were in high demand, and despite their vows, the abbots found ways to justify transferring these monks out for convenient political reasons. As this whole process was going on, the bureaucratic needs of the bishops were growing, and the demands on their time kept them away from the educational processes themselves, and so there was a need for skilled teachers to help the bishops keep their schools running. 
While there are examples of entirely secular people with education, and while bishop schools would continue to function in Italy all through the chaos of the Middle Ages, in most of Europe, the various rounds of chaos left the monastic communities as the only places in Europe where one could get a basic education, and thus they also represented a large, continent-wide reservoir of teachers. In this way, the monasteries were the intellectual bulwark of Europe, and kept the bishop schools and thus the entire Christian hierarchy, operating from a human resources perspective. So, the bishops needed the monasteries, even if the monasteries' very existence was an implicit critique of the way the bishops practiced Christianity. On the other hand, the bishops were the ones who had power and political connections. They were often from noble families and regularly attended royal courts. They were the ones who fought the side of the church in court cases and protected church interests. Sometimes they had armies. In places without strong bishops, like much of the British Isles, we find a lot of evidence of monastic communities being put out of business by local nobles. I mean the Vikings. It was the Vikings. Look at the Vikings. Not the local nobles stealing their land. So the monasteries ultimately needed the bishops as well. The result of this process was that, despite the differences in practice and lifestyle between the two branches of the church, by the year 1000 they had formed a series of tight alliances across Europe that would have profound consequences going forward. The monasteries became the intellectual centers of the church, and supplied many of the bishops of the era. As we discussed last time, these monasteries were increasingly themselves under the influence of the Cluniac Order, which formed a network of affiliated institutions across Europe, whose primary loyalty was to their local bishop and, vitally, the Pope. As we are about to see, that was not always the case with, well, anyone else. That's kind of enough to bring us back up to speed, I think. For the rest of this episode, I want to look into a few interrelated questions as we proceed. Who performed the daily functions of the church? What was their relationship with the community? And what did this mean in terms of the lived experience of Christianity in the Middle Ages? I'm going to begin by partly answering the last question first, since this partial answer applies to all of these other questions. There is no uniform experience of Christianity. I know, huge shock, and I basically already said that. But let's just fully state this for the record. Christianity was a major religion not only in Western Europe, but in Eastern Europe, much of the Levant, Ethiopia, and there were major Christian communities all along the North African coast, in the Caucasus region, and well into Central Asia. These last communities, those in Central Asia, Ethiopia, and those in the Caucasus region, were neither in communication nor communion with the main heartlands of Christianity, with some exceptions in the Caucasus region. Even within the heartland of the former Roman Empire, there was the major and obvious split between the Greek-speaking churches of the Eastern Roman Empire and the Latin-speaking churches of the former Western Empire. While their theological practices had not really diverged much by this point, the process was underway. But even within these two churches, there was a fair amount of diversity in language, practice, and even theology. To a larger extent than many appreciate today, this diversity was a feature and not a bug of the medieval Christian system. The Greek word Catholic, which all former Roman churches used to describe themselves, East and West, that word means universal, and it has a connotation along the lines of a big tent. Just as the Roman Empire saw itself as a representative of a civilizing mission, but which respected local cultures and differences so long as you paid your taxes, so was the Catholic mission of the church. Local differences and cultures were fine, but you had to believe in Jesus. At the same time, the church was orthodox, another Greek word that almost all Christian churches used to describe themselves east and west. It means right opinion. Here the connotation is that there is only one truth, and one understanding of the Christian mission. 
Since the Christian church embraced both these goals, there is an inherent tension there similar to that between the regular and secular clergy. Central to this tension is the person of the bishop and how that person relates to the rest of the hierarchy. Now, we've talked about bishops before, but we probably have some misconceptions that we need to address. In modern society, the way most of us think of a religion is based on our experience with the head of our local congregation. If you're a Catholic, this is your parish priest. In my case, it's the rabbi. Others have pastors, ministers, imams, etc., etc. This is the person who leads the community, as it were. If there is a hierarchy in your religion, the people above your priest, pastor, etc., they set policy and stuff, and they may be a person that you honor greatly, but they don't necessarily set the tone for your day-to-day -day worships. By way of metaphor, this is similar to the way people in the Navy view the captains of destroyers. The captain of a boat is the king of their domain. Sure, they need to follow orders from the admirals and stuff, but they set the tone of daily life on their vessel in a way that the admiral does not. They are protagonists in their own story. So it is today with the parish priest, rabbi, the pastor, etc. In the Roman Empire, this principal person of the hierarchy was not the parish priest, but the bishop. The bishop was the head of the local Christian community in every city, and they set the tone for daily religious life. Over the course of the empire's fall, Roman cities contained more and more Christians, and the bishops took on more and more responsibility. They had to take on helpers to see to day-to-day -day religious activities, and ultimately the management of the city and its hinterlands. But in the early Middle Ages, the bishops remained the central figure of Christianity on the ground, at least in terms of legal authority. They might not say every mass, but the bishops set the tone of worship. They guided theological discussions. They trained and appointed the priests. The bishops themselves, and I think I mentioned this before, but they were not appointed from above the way they are today. Bishops in the Middle Ages were elected uh, by the clergy in their diocese and the leading citizens. To make the ceremony official, and to continue the line of apostolic succession, this appointment had to be officiated by at least one, but preferably several, neighboring bishops. They would practice a ceremony called the laying on of the hands, which served to pass the power granted the apostles by Jesus, and from the apostles to the bishop. This was seen as a literal sort of magic power, and was considered extremely important to the faithful of the time. And of course, uh, apostolic succession is still very important to Catholicism today. Now, what all this means is, of course, that the bishop is responsible in many ways to no one but himself. But there was a hierarchy, and it was very ancient, so let's talk about that real quick. We talked in past episodes about how disputes between bishops were resolved by appeals to archbishops, and then on to the patriarchs, one of which was the pope. But I needed to clarify the nature of these relationships. The archbishop was simply the first amongst equals. When disputes came his way, his ability to resolve them was mostly down to voluntary arbitration. He had no power to compel the bishops to listen to him. He didn't appoint them, and he couldn't order them around. He had no force. Of course, the Pope, living thousands of miles away in Rome, definitely had no power of this kind. So, if disputes arose that could not be solved by simple arbitration, the Archbishop's key role was to summon a council of the local bishops to discuss the issue and reach a consensus conclusion. It was this conclusion, reached by the council, that had some power of compulsion due to peer pressure and the fact that it was the local bishops who had to cooperate in the appointment of the new bishop. Remember, the laying on of the hands thing. So the council would assemble and debate the issue at hand, and usually they could resolve the disputes. But if this council could not reach an internal consensus, or if there was a dispute between councils, that's when the patriarch or pope in the Latin West would get involved. But again, they didn't necessarily have any power of compulsion. 
So if their advisory role wasn't enough, they would, again, ultimately call a council to resolve tricky issues via discussion. Again, if this council couldn't reach consensus, that's when a full ecumenical council of all the bishops in the Roman Empire, or former Roman Empire, would theoretically be called. Of course, this kind of gathering became fairly rare after the fall of the Western Roman Empire. While this is all commendably free of compulsion, it was also a recipe for disunity. In the Eastern Roman world, tricky theological disputes often got tangled with political problems between regions of the empire. If a group of archbishops refused to abide by the decision of the larger councils, the church hierarchy didn't necessarily have any way to compel compromise. The only power that did was the imperial government, which ultimately ended up involving the political power of the state in highly emotional and ultimately unresolvable religious discussions that also happened to break down along lines of dangerous regional power blocks. This process was not unrelated to the disasters that would ultimately befall the Eastern Roman Empire in the face of first the Sassanid Persians and later the armies of Islam. Once those dangerous power blocks with their different theological ideas had been stripped away, however, the ability of the Byzantine state to hold together based on one religious framework meant that it was a hard nut to crack. In the West, there was no imperial power structure, but there were also very few serious theological issues. Part of the reason may be that the West only had one patriarch, and so legitimacy-minded members of the church always saw unity in Rome. On the other hand, the West also lacked high levels of urban development, which meant that it lacked the educational sophistication of the East. Whatever sophistication there was would ultimately be seriously disrupted by the collapse of the empire, so it seems likely that the West may have just been too busy or undeveloped to spend time debating the nature of the Trinity, etc. But that doesn't mean that the West was a homogenous mass. Instead, diversity in the West was fueled by three basic factors. Entropy, socioeconomic difference, and politics. By entropy, I mean the inevitable drift that occurs when you have societies that were once a singular entity, but which slowly drift apart due to time and the lack of communications. This could be as simple as an error resulting in the incorrect dating of a religious festival, and as complex as the gradual development of vernacular dialects into distinct languages. In the context of a society that yearned for the good old days of the empire, Latin was embraced explicitly as a unifying force, and communications between bishops and monastic communities were used to help limit this kind of drift. Of course, in the context of everyone else not knowing Latin anymore, this would eventually become fairly complex. In periods of political stability, this system worked fairly well, but in the chaos that followed the breakup of the Merovingian kingdom and then of the Carolingian Empire, diversity would inevitably increase, and Latin served to limit the ability of lay people to engage in intellectual life. On the other hand, someone who had learned Latin would suddenly be able to benefit from ideas not only of their small corner of the world, but from the intellectual ideas of the entirety of Western Europe. Socioeconomic issues were more severe, and we have already discussed them to some extent in this show. In the British Isles and in Germany, there were no urban centers for the bishops to colonize, and in this environment it was the monasteries, which were basically freeze-dried cities, which found the best success. When combined with the other issues of the age, this created distinct cultural zones that practiced Christianity differently, notably in the case of the Celtic Church. Indeed, these two issues can best be seen in the conflict between the Celtic Church and the Roman Church in Northumbria. Now, I'm summarizing a lot, and I'm skipping some details for the sake of brevity, but Northumbria was a kingdom which sat on the border between the two different kinds of Christianity, and at a certain point in its history, it had a king who followed the Celtic rule and a queen who followed the Roman one. As I said in previous episodes, the differences between the churches were sort of minor. The monks cut their hair differently, the bishops were not as important, etc., etc. The big issue for this royal couple, however, was a difference in the dating of Easter. 
Essentially, the Roman church had made a decision at some point to change the way the date was calculated, and due to the chaos of mainland Europe, the Celtic church literally just never got the memo. The date was off by a week or two, which doesn't sound like a big deal until you factor in Lent and the fasting traditions that accompany the holiday. So, like something out of a 90s era sitcom, the royal couple couldn't agree who was correct, and so they split the house down the middle. According to the story we have, I should say, that's a big issue here. We don't know if this is true or not, but that's the story. They maintained two sets of priests and celebrated Easter on different days, with the result that when mon one monarch was fasting, the other was feasting, and vice versa. Apparently in the same room, because these medieval-era feasting halls weren't that big, you know? So can you imagine? Oh man, the cook really outdid himself on the roast mutton this year. I mean, this is probably the best thing I've ever eaten. I mean, it just smells so good, right honey? Oh, I, uh, I mean, it's not that good. I'm sure your vegetable pottage is also very nice. I mean, our cook makes the best pottage, I've always said. Haven't I, guys? I've always said that. Haven't I always said? I mean, if I had to pick between his pottage and literally any other pottage in the world, I would pick his. Easily. It's just so, so very good. I'm never going to get you to rub my sore shoulder ever again, am I? So the king called a council to debate the issue and ultimately sided with Rome, which not only let his wife win the argument and ensured many years of shoulder rubs, but also, and I'm sure entirely coincidentally, gave him closer ties to continental Europe and the very lucrative trade deals that that implied, which is to say that I'm sure he was convinced by the very important theological arguments. Anyway, a few things to take from the story. First, while much of the diversity in Western Europe was seemingly petty, it could have major implications for people on a personal, political, and economic level well beyond the seeming scale of the problem. Like, the date of Easter is not that important, right? I mean, maybe it is, but the implications are more important. Second, the problem was resolved by the decision of a council, not by the Pope. Third, and very importantly, the council was not called by an archbishop or by the Pope, but the king. The king had the ability to use physical force to compel agreement with the council, and wouldn't you know it, the bishops assembled despite his lack of authority, and the king's decision and the council's decision just turned out to be the same. This brings us to the final issue, feudal politics. The theoretical framework of the church I've been discussing is really the framework that was developed during the stable period between the rise of Constantine and the fall of the Western Empire. As I've said in previous episodes, all those nice elections and church councils worked okay when the people doing the voting were the richest people in Rome and they were protected by the Roman army. Though there was always some level of corruption, to be honest. As soon as this picture of voting changes to being a group of the richest people in the province, all in one room, without military support, things fell apart fairly quickly. In short, the influence of hairy men with swords on the electoral process became rather significant. It's easy to overstate the significance of this. We should go into what I'm about to say with the understanding that whatever the self-serving political and economic actions that were taken, most members of the aristocracy considered themselves to be devout Christians and opposed injuries to the church, at least when those injuries were done by other people. But that said, as the Roman and Germanic aristocracies merged, and as the new warrior elites of the post-Roman world began to assert dominance over the emerging society, the bishops and abbots of the church became players in the feudal society that was emerging. Though often powerful lords in their own right, with great power in their local area, lords in the Middle Ages were also subordinate to the regional alliance systems to which they belonged, and that also went for the bishops and the abbots. As a result, the institutions of the Catholic Church became items that were contested by the various noble families of the age. 
They got their relatives appointed to church offices, used monasteries as sources of bureaucrats, and in more chaotic periods, just plain straight up stole supplies and land from the church when it, they needed to. The bishops themselves were often relatives of royal households or powerful noble families. This didn't always mean the people who were getting appointed were actually bad at their jobs. Far from it. But there is certainly the issue of the reason that they were being appointed wasn't for their educational achievements in theology. The implications of all these structural issues were felt not only in the halls of power, but on the ground in the religious life of common people across Europe. And so it's time to finally talk about the most important source of diversity in the lived experience of medieval Christianity. Were you noble or common? Did you live in a village or in the city? Let's return to the metaphor of the destroyer captain. If the bishop is the destroyer captain of the medieval church, that is to say they're the ones with real agency or protagonism in their role, what does that mean for everyone else? Answering this question requires us to talk about something super exciting. The manpower density the bishops were able to bring to bear on their congregations. I know. Cool down. I'll get there. As we have said, the bishops by this point led a local administrative system that was intended to help them with their growing responsibilities. To run this administrative framework, the bishops were supposed to be responsible for recruiting, training, and appointing people in the various roles required by the church. This setup suited the urbanized landscape of Italy and much of southern Europe during the empire. Here they had access to an educated population that could staff their administration, while still being in a small enough geographic region that the bishop could go around checking in on everyone from time to time and make sure they were doing their jobs. But in northern Europe, and after the empire fell, this system just came apart a bit, and we've already discussed some of the reasons uh, in terms of the educational frameworks. Even beyond the educational issues, in the rural landscape of the north, there were always just too few bishops to maintain this density of oversight, while the pockets of literate urban populations started small and then went into sharp decline. Similar issues happened in Italy, although they always had more of a density. The bishops just struggled to hold the Christian community of their local city together without even worrying about taking care of the people in their massive, massive hinterlands. So as the new feudal order settled into place, the bishops had to make choices about manpower allocation. They didn't always make them consciously, but in practice they made them. They basically prioritized two areas, staffing their own administration. This was vital for gathering and allocating the resources they needed to fulfill their roles. This is important just for keeping the lights on. And two, ministering to the spiritual needs of the nobility. These were their key allies in this new world, and since the feudal system was so heavily based on direct personal bonds, the bishops had to give personal attention to the nobles. So if you were a noble or a king, the bishop themselves might attend to you at your court, assuming you were on good terms, and so you'd have the benefit of the presumably highest educated, best connected Christian within your realm ministering to your needs, baptizing your children, discussing theology with you, etc., etc., Lesser-ranking nobles would also get some face time, usually in terms of, you know, higher-ranking people within the aristocracy, the better people in the bishop's hierarchy. And it's fair to say that during the immediate aftermath of the fall of the empire, this strategy was key to the conversion of the invading Germanic tribes, as it gave political cover for the conversion process. If, you know, the new King Fredegar or whatever wasn't down with Christianity, and he was going to persecute your missionaries, and he was going to keep his people from converting to Christianity, well you know, you're not going to get very far. On the other hand, if you can convert him, he can impose Christianity for you down the line. Once given the green light, the bishops did go around preaching and establishing some parish churches, and these were kept staffed. But after the initial conversion push, the bishops had to return to court. 
The churches that had been founded were often few and far between in comparison to the size of the landscape they needed to cover, and the bishops had few people or resources to spare for the foundation of more. The issue was compounded by a familiar kind of obstinacy within the hierarchy. As with so much of the church at this time, the official church hierarchy insisted on sticking to the official church infrastructure as it existed in the dying days of the empire, almost to the exclusion of anything else. So if a bishopric had been given a certain area of responsibility during the empire, by golly, that would be their area for all time. Within the bishoprics, the same mentality often applied to parish churches. We shouldn't blame this on sheer pig-headedness. There were other issues at work, mostly economic. While tithing at this time was not the sophisticated pseudo-tax it would become in later centuries, churches did get revenue from their areas of geographic responsibility. Bishops held manors, parish churches were given the rights to farmland, and there are various fees which we will discuss more in a minute. Tithing, which called for the payment of a certain portion of a person's income, was usually voluntary in this period, but compulsory tithing did happen as well. And then it should be said that in a period where much church property was being stolen, even as the bishops relied on the power that came from this wealth to defend their flocks, there were few incentives to split bishoprics that would just have the resources that each bishop had at hand. Parish churches had similar concerns, and since the bishops wanted these to be fully funded and supported, they often resisted splitting parishes or founding new churches. But as you can imagine, this had an impact on the lived experience of Christianity for normal people. All the evidence we have says that these people did consider themselves to be devout Christians, you know, pretty quickly. Although it certainly took some time after Constantine, by the time we're talking about in the early Middle Ages, all the evidence we have shows that even the commoners considered themselves to be devout Christians, at least as much as the nobles did. But what that meant to them was undoubtedly as much of a mystery to them as it is to us. Almost certainly, many pagan rituals survived the fall of the Roman Empire under new Christian veneers. Many of them still exist today. But at the same time, peasants would often walk dozens of miles to get to a church for services. Sometimes even this wasn't available, and the peasants would walk that far just to reach a stone cross in the middle of the woods, planted on the ground at some point in the past, and this served as a signpost that Christian services were sometimes held there at specified dates. The peasants would know the time, they would all assemble, and from time to time, a priest or a monk would just show up and preach to them. They would also, if necessary, perform baptisms and, and other rites of passage. But, you know, it's like every six months... That's your opportunity to do all your spiritualism, whatever your spiritual needs may be. It was basically like a medieval food truck app, except with God instead of Asian fusion street food, and there was no truck and no smartphones. Obviously, this was not enough to meet the spiritual needs of the peasants, and so the local leadership of the countryside interceded, this being the lords. The lords, seeking to ensure the spiritual health of their communities, as good leaders did at that time, would put up the funds to build the churches to minister to their people. They would petition and pressure the bishop to send them a priest, and if that didn't work, they would just hire one. This was legal, of course, under church law, but let's not be cynical about this. In such a religious age, this was the ideal of noble leadership personified. Their tenants would probably have seen this as a literal godsend, a guarantee that their children would be baptized and their souls saved. I think it's absolutely vital for us to pause and reflect on this before we move on to the teensy bit about what the nobles wanted in return. Now, remember how I said that, on the manor, the baker and the miller and the blacksmith got their oven and their mill and their forge built for them by the lord, and they were given a monopoly in the village, but in return they had to pay the lord rent, you know, some portion of their income. Well, while some lords did provide the church and priest completely free of charge, many, if not most of them, didn't. 
They saw the church as their church and felt that they were due some recompense for their efforts. Some portion of the church's income would thus go back to the Lord. Now, to be fair, many of these churches were very well provided for. We have some records, even in the earliest of the Middle Ages, of priests living in absolute luxury, wearing very fine clothing and going on hunts rather than administering to their flocks. And we have no reason to doubt that this was true in some cases, and that, you know, from the economic evidence we have, they were certainly well enough provided for that this was possible. Typically, in these situations, the priest was given the rights to enough land to provide a tidy living for himself and to maintain the church. Of course, the land given was enough that there was supposed to be a tenant who could also be supported, and then that tenant was actually doing the farm work and then also sending the bulk of the income from that land to the priest. So you were really supporting like a person and a half and a church off of this land, if that makes sense. This all was supposed to allow the priest to go on focusing on priesting stuff. And then this was in addition to what the priests could expect via tithes, uh, which were again theoretically voluntary in most of the early Middle Ages at this time, but that was still an income. So all of this adds up to a fairly tidy sum in the early Middle Ages. But unfortunately, things in the Middle Ages rarely worked the way they were supposed to in theory. Now the theory was, of course, that the bishop appointed the priest, the bishop would train, select, and appoint the priest, and they would do this and expect none of the priest's income and recompense. But then, how likely was that? The bishop did need to get some value from their hinterland, so fairly quickly there were at least some informal arrangements where income was being sent to the bishop from the local priests. Now, even in situations where the Lord hadn't built the church, the Lord would at least exert some influence over who would be preaching to his peasants. Uh, but then again, as I said, in many cases, the Lord had never gotten permission from the bishop for the appointment of the priest in the first place. He would just sort of hang around the bishop's palace, finding fully trained priests and start offering them cash. So just like the other clerical offices we've discussed, parish priest positions were often given out as patronage, and the local lords and the bishop would squabble over it, and sometimes they would just share it. And then things really get nuts. The priest would sometimes be given multiple parishes. Sometimes he would travel between them on a regular basis. Sometimes he would have so many parishes that there was no way he could visit them all, or maybe he just didn't want to, and he would subcontract out the actual day-to-day -day priesting stuff to someone else. Sometimes he would just take the money and go hunting. So now, rather than one person holding the religious health of a community in their hand and drawing a tidy income for their trouble, you could end up with a contract worker who had as many as three people collecting dues. The bishop, the lord, and the actual quote-unquote priest who was supposed to be doing the work, but probably sh rarely showed up if ever. The real actual priests, the one who actually showed up and did the real priest things, had few options in this situation because so much of their income was being diverted to other people. They owed their positions to their benefactors and really needed the local lord to be on side if they were going to have any cope of collecting their tithes and land income, but this really restricted the amount of income the priest could get. With these sources of revenue so restricted, the priests often end up charging directly for their services. These are those fees I mentioned before. The priest might not be able to depend on tithes, and he might not be able to collect rent from his tenants without the Lord's cooperation. But if you came to him asking for your new baby to be baptized, the priest might just start to think that he deserved some compensation for the service he was providing you. After all, the people paid the baker and the miller. The priest was saving your child's immortal soul. Surely that was worth something. To be clear, most of this was illegal under church law, but particularly the fee-for-service stuff. It's actually the most clear example of a heresy called simony to demand payment for religious services. 
But as with so much we have discussed, the lack of communications and manpower for the church hierarchy in the Middle Ages made it so that this became a very widespread practice. After all, if the bishop isn't going to come around telling you no, then who's going to stop you? Even with the fees, parish priests were usually still not able to even make ends meet. But the worst part of all this is that, with so much income being diverted, even with the fees, the parish priests were still not able to make ends meet, and most of them ended up farming the land given to them by the Lord directly, which meant that they were often engaged in things like spreading manure and plowing rather than seeing to the spiritual needs of the village like they were supposed to be. Long story short, while parish priest positions were still sought after posts even under these conditions, they were not always filled by what we might call the brightest lights of the church. Priests almost always had some education, certainly more than anyone else in the village, but complaints abound about priests who only knew a few basic prayers by rote memorization, or who could only read enough Latin to say a mass. Finally, there's the issue of priestly celibacy. The valorization of celibacy had a long tradition in Christianity, but it was never a hard and fast rule. In Eastern churches, right down to the modern day, many local priests have families. And this was true in the early Middle Ages in the Latin church as well. That said, celibacy was seen as evidence of holiness, and it was sort of an unwritten rule that if you wanted to get anywhere in the church, if you wanted to get elected as a bishop, you probably either should not be married, or you should be prepared to set your wife aside once you got promoted. Over the course of the early centuries of Christianity, this unwritten rule was gradually codified in various councils across the Christian world, and it was in some places applied to priests, but it doesn't seem that there was any kind of uniform rule banning priestly marriage before the period of the Cluniac reforms. But even where it was illegal, the priests in the village may just not have known about this rule. So again, long story short, many if not most parish priests had families, and we have records of some families treating the position as a family trade. Just as the proud blacksmith father would one day pass his forge on to his eldest son, so too would the priestly father pass his church on to his eldest son. Now, I need to caution everyone about the picture I've painted here. Many sources we are drawing from come at the end of this period and are speaking from a place where they are pushing a reform agenda. In other cases, we are using evidence associated with a bishop who was trying to correct the practice, which will tend to distort our ability to understand how prevalent a problem might have been. After all, you never really get records of a bishop writing to a priest to say, I've been hearing some rumors from passing traders, whispers in the marketplace, confirmed by secret sources. They say that you are doing a great job. Give yourself a high five. I sent one of my rare and valuable clerical functionaries all the way from the regional capital to your podunk little village just to bring you this message saying that. So next time things get tough and you don't know what to do, remember, we're all rooting for you, buddy. Now go out there and be the best priest you can be. Snapped and pointed. So given the distortions and sources, we probably shouldn't think that all rural parishes endured the kinds of conditions I've described. Indeed, my discussion about diversity should caution us that making any blanket generalizations about conditions in all or even most parishes is a futile gesture. But we can assume that there was a spectrum of conditions where any of the variables that I just discussed could have been switched either way. Some parishes would have had a well-trained priest who was able to keep all or most of his income, knew the law, and therefore did not take fees. Some parishes would be stuck paying their tithes and land dues to lords, bishops, and absentee priests, while one of the neighbors, who plowed fields alongside them, had a family, barely spoke Latin, and tried his best to perform all the actual priestly functions in return to cash. 
To this spectrum, we can add that some villages would have had still no church at all and would have had their spiritual needs met by occasional visits from monks. Some villages would have been split between two parish churches, one of which may have been close while the other was very far away, and they would be compelled to walk to whichever village the church they were assigned to happened to be located in. One might expect that commoners living in cities would be better off, and if they happened to live in a city with a bishop's seat, they undoubtedly were. But as we discussed in the episodes on city life, many of the cities in the north of Europe were new or refounded communities in the early Middle Ages. Given what I've said earlier about the bishops' unwillingness to consent to splitting their territory, many of these new cities did not have a bishop's seat. Indeed, many did not have a parish church at all. In many cases, the citizens of the city were expected to get up every Sunday and walk out to one of the villages in their hinterland, or even to a rival town. Now, it should be said that this was more than an inconvenience or a humiliation. For people in the Middle Ages, there was no distinction between religion and science. They had no concept of germ theory or the physical forces that control the weather or cause natural disasters. So while we might view it as a superstition that pre-modern people thought that illness was caused by evil spirits or the devil, I would ask you to just imagine trying to explain modern beliefs to them without access to modern tools like microscopes and the like. For political institutions like cities, which contained educated people, the ideas of collective guilt and Davidic kingship made this all very important. It was felt that the sins committed by anyone in the community could result in collective punishment, while conversely, it was thought that a political leader's duty included seeing to what we might call the moral hygiene of the group. At the most basic level, cities that had religious institutions could use those institutions to pray for aid and protection during times of war and disaster and religious leaders could help advise them on how to ensure the moral hygiene of the group, for instance, by banning sex workers and things like that, things that we referenced in the episodes on urban life. So it was that, much like the lords, the city governments of the Middle Ages got new churches, created in their towns by whatever means necessary. Unfortunately, the relative weakness of the cities at this time, combined with their visibility, made the establishment of illegal churches a bit harder than it was for the lords although the case of Venice is, as usual, a fun, swashbuckling case to the contrary. So instead of just hiring a priest and daring anyone to do anything about it, they would negotiate deals with the bishop, whereby the town would build their own church, and it couldn't be called a church. It was called a chapel, a satellite institution for private devotions. The town would build the building themselves, furnish it themselves, and pay the salary of the priest from their own pockets, all while continuing to pay tithes and land income to the old parish church whose territory they supposedly fell in. Again, the situation was not universal, but it was relatively common in the early Middle Ages. As we shall see, the power of the cities would not remain low for very long, nor should it be said would the church hierarchy remain so obstinate in their opposition to change. We should also probably expect that the priests serving in these urban communities were better educated, since the position would be more lucrative and their clients had more power to be picky than a rural village. Still, it's fair to say that during the early Middle Ages, the rising cities and towns of Europe often struggled to get their spiritual needs met. I have a bit more to say about the spiritual life of the early Middle Ages, but I think we've reached a breaking point, and so I'm going to split the rest into a future special episode. I'm not sure if it's going to be next or in a few months. But for now, today we discussed how the different parts of the clergy worked together, with the monasteries providing an intellectual reservoir and a safety valve for the more fanatical. Meanwhile, the bishops provided political cover and hierarchical coherence. In this process, the bishops and the monks prioritized their manpower in ways that did not necessarily focus on ministering to the needs of the population at large. When combined with the lack of institutional homogeneity in Latin Christendom, the result was a huge diversity in the lived experience of Christianity at the time. 
While nobles would often have bishops or leading intellectual monks ministering to their spiritual needs at any time of day or night, the commoners could confront a very mixed bag of prospects. The one thing we can say with certainty is that most of them were hungry for the spiritual guidance of the church, as they understood it, and they invested extraordinary amounts of effort and money to this end. The political establishments of the time responded to this need, though often the quality of the staffing left something to be desired. The key takeaway, however, is the idea of diversity in the church. In some places, priests were allowed to marry, but not bishops. In others, no one was allowed to marry, but they did it anyway. In some places, the priests were leaders of an intellectual culture that stretched from Scotland to Sicily and from Iberia to the Slavic frontier. In others, the priest was an illiterate local farmer who would stand up in front of his neighbors at whatever time he thought he was supposed to and say random Harry Potter-style pseudo-Latin and then tell them that he had banished the evil spirits. Some priests were extremely committed to their role and were leaders of their communities. Some were corrupt and cynical people who abused their family connections to milk a poor and ignorant people of their resources. Some villages had one church. Some had as many as three churches, and they had to walk to them in neighboring towns. Some villages had no church at all and just made things up and hoped it would make God happy. As usual, it isn't simple, but I hope that this complexity is as comforting to you as it is for me. They were a human people. Not just like us, maybe, but in these strange records of a strange culture, maybe we can understand their humanity even from this distance. Okay, that's me for this week. Remember to listen to Map Corner and Agoraphobia. I hope to see you at the Sound Education Conference. And just a reminder that this month is October, and so it's going to be the Potiversary. If you have any last-minute questions, send them in. Uh, if you have any requests for topics, send them in. I'll get to what I can. Thank you very much, and see you all again real soon. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com.